Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. It's hard to imagine that this time next week we'll be sitting here just hours away from our first Premier League game of the season against Manchester City at the Emirates on Sunday, the 12th of August. Where has the summer gone? It doesn't feel like there's been any kind of a break at all. Maybe it's because of the the World Cup. Maybe it's because of all the stuff that's been going on at Arsenal. You know, the uh, change of uh, manager, change of head coach, obviously all the transfer dealing that we did during July kept people excited. But it's just whizzed past this summer, hasn't it? Maybe the summer itself, because it's been so so warm and so nice a kind of um, time flies when you're having fun sort of thing going on, but we're nearly there. We're nearly at the start of a, a brand new Premier League season, and uh, I can't quite believe it. We do, of course, still have one uh, preseason friendly to play in the uh, International Champions Cup thing. I, actually, I must send uh, a little tip of the hat here to uh, to Brendan Riley, who sent me an email during the week about the International Champions Cup. And, uh, you know, we can laugh at it and we can laugh at their risable attempts to make it sound important. But uh, he was saying he was listening to an interview with uh, Ray Hudson, who is one of the administrators of the International Champions Cup. And apparently what they do is they bundle a load of services together to the big clubs to to help them get through their preseason. So ticket sales, logistics, accommodation, friendlies, facilities, all those kind of things that a club would have to do on its own or in conjunction with another club if they were going to arrange a friendly, for example, in a, in a far distant place. So they, they do all that kind of stuff for the clubs. The clubs know that they're going to get a certain amount of money because they've arranged or agreed to take part in these prearranged fixtures in this so-called tournament. But it takes a lot of the weight off clubs from an administrative point of view. Um, the benefits aren't passed on to fans, unfortunately, because we have to pay a load of the, uh, the ticket prices, which are very, very high. They were very high in Dublin this week. But you can understand why the clubs go for it. If it takes a lot of the hassle out of preseason for them, then you can uh, you can understand why they go down that particular road. Um, so Lazio tomorrow night in Stockholm. That's the final game of Unai Emery's uh, preseason preparations before we get into real football, if you will. And it has been pretty interesting. I was there on Wednesday night in Dublin to uh, to watch us play uh, Chelsea. A few little thoughts on that coming up in, in a moment. But it was a, an interesting kind of a day, actually, because I did an event in the uh, with the Dublin Arsenal Supporters Club. It was in conjunction with, with Arsenal. They had arranged a legend 
to go and uh, speak, uh, to do an interview. I did the interview. We did some Q&A, and it was Saul Campbell. And, you know, I was a little bit worried uh, about this one because I wasn't sure how willing he would have been to talk about the 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 move from Tottenham to Arsenal. And obviously there's a lot more that you can talk to Saul Campbell about, you know, how things went, for example, when he moved from Tottenham to Arsenal. But it's a big a big event, a big event in his career and a big event in the lives of many Arsenal fans as well, because getting one over on them, snagging their captain for free, and watching him come to the club and win the double in his first season and be part of a a, a team that went unbeaten in another season and winning the league at White Hart Lane. All those things kind of are are little side dishes to the main Saul Campbell at Arsenal story. But thankfully, he was very willing to talk about all that. And he actually, uh, he knew how to work the crowd, shall we say. He knew how to to drop in a little comment here and there about his his move, but about his time at Arsenal. So that uh, that was quite a fun thing to do. I think there was uh, 150 or 200 people at the event, so that was nice, and it seemed to go down very well. So uh, that made uh, that made the day interesting. And then a few beers with the friends and the mates and some people over from London, some of the Tollington crew. So it was kind of nice to see people on home turf and also really nice after an Arsenal game to just wander home, walk up the road, jump in a cab, listen to the taxi driver tell me uh, how much he hates tourists. And I'm not sure, despite being somebody who uses words for a living, that I can express quite how much he hates tourists, which is unfortunate because they are, I imagine, a big part of your life when you're a taxi driver and you work on the taxi ranks and people jump in your cab with suitcases and what have you. So uh, it was entertaining stuff because, you know, I wasn't a tourist, and he was quite willing to uh, tell me some horror stories. But there you go. If you're a tourist and you're coming to Dublin, watch out for that guy. I can't remember his name or what car he was driving or anything else. Uh, But I figure, you know, if you get him, you'll know him. Or he'll certainly make himself uh, known to you. So that was nice. And the game itself, you know, it's preseason. It wasn't the most exciting game. The atmosphere was a little bit flat, really, until the final stages. You know, a last-minute goal is always fun. Uh, Winning on penalties is always fun. There was some uh, little pantomime stuff going on. Cesc Fabregas came over to take a corner at one stage at the end where most of the Arsenal fans were, and there was like, boo, some booing of Cesc Fabregas. And then he gave a clap, and then there was some cheers for Cesc Fabregas. So all quite amusing, really. And uh, the game itself, well, you know, we went behind very early uh, to a, a goal from a corner. I think it was actually taken by Sesk. Was it that corner? Yes, it was. It could have been that very corner that they were booing him from. So, uh, yeah, well done to you guys. You you sparked him into a good delivery, but the defending, not great. Not great. No man on the post as well, which is a new development for Petr Cech, whether he's being instructed to have no man on the post or whether it's a new thing he wants to try or, or who knows. I don't know, but it was noticeable that there was no man on the post. And there was another incident in the in the second half where they could have scored. Rudiger could have scored a second goal. Pretty much the same kind of thing, a corner. And uh, he met it with the header and uh, put it just wide this time rather than into the bottom corner. So that is uh, a little bit concerning. For me, just from the footballing point of view, I feel like there's work to be done there. Um, the central defenders who played on on Wednesday night don't necessarily fill me with a great deal of confidence at this moment in time. I'm open to 
my mind being completely changed. And if they play well and form a great partnership, I will be very, very happy. But just based on what I saw on Wednesday night, I'm a little less confident going into the Manchester City game than I was beforehand. I think Unai Emery has got quite a bit of work to do on our defence. And maybe that's something we all would have uh, acknowledged at the start of the season or at the end of last season, at the end of the Arsene Wenger era. You would have said, yes, defence is something he really does have to, to work on. And he probably is working on it. And I think we need to be perhaps a bit patient because maybe we're underestimating the amount of work that needs to be done. And I don't think it's simply the defenders. I think it's a team thing. It's a collective thing. It's what we do off the ball and how we operate off the ball. If he can get the midfield, for example, uh, with Lucas Torreira and whoever else might be in that midfield to, to provide a bit more protection to the back four, then that will go some way to making us more secure and more solid. But I think as a defensive unit, there's still plenty to do with that back four. It looks, and I could be wrong, it looks as if Mustafi and Socrates is his first choice pick right now. Socrates is our, our big defensive signing, £16 million, and Mustafi is our next most experienced central defender. And given the start that we have against Manchester City and against Chelsea, I can kind of understand why he's hoping to make that work ahead of those games. And again, I don't want to read too much into preseason games. You know, on, on the one hand, you wouldn't go overboard if a guy was playing brilliantly. Uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit about somebody uh, in, in that sense now in a moment. Uh, nor would you go overboard if somebody was playing too badly. But you'd like to start seeing the the roots or the shoots of progress or or organization and defensive discipline. And I'm not sure that was there on Wednesday night. We had some problems with their left winger. We did not really address those problems at all. Hector Bellerin suffered a torrid time at the hands of this young guy. He was really, really quick and uh, really willing to run. But I don't think a guy basically running in a diagonal line from out wide on the Chelsea left, driving into the Arsenal box, should cause such absolute consternation within our own defensive area. There was some last-ditch defending. I think we could have organized things a little bit better. And that's where, when you hear Socrates come in and say, look, I'm the, the, the right age for a defender. I'm 30 years of age. You know, I've got the experience. I'll get these guys organized. And you're looking at him going, okay, well, do a bit of that. Do a bit of that organizing. Provide Hector Bellerin with a little bit more cover on the right-hand side. Because he didn't really get any at all for the entire game. He didn't get much support from an attacking point of view, and he didn't get much cover from a defensive point of view. And that seems to be continuing on a theme that was present during the, the Arsene Wenger era. But when it was obvious we had this problem, Mustafi and Socrates could have organized something. They could have had a word with whoever was supposed to be playing on that right-hand side, or at least communicate to somebody, look, we've got an issue, you need to help us out here rather than it being panic stations when they get into our box. So there are things there that the manager or the head coach can work on with those players, but it doesn't look like, or it didn't look like on Wednesday night, like there was a great deal of on-pitch 
organization going on when it became obvious that there, there was a bit of an issue. So, um, yeah, I'm a bit worried about it, but I'm open to my mind being changed, obviously, when we start playing games that, that actually matter. Because I think even subconsciously players, they realize it's preseason. They know it's a friendly uh, maybe some of those guys don't feel like they're actually playing for their place. Like Socrates, I, I suspect, knows that he's going to be starting games because he's the most experienced defender we have available and we've paid a big transfer fee for him. So you're not going to start that guy on the bench. But I would hope that if if uh, performances dictate that other players are given a chance, even if it is early in the season, I hope uh, I hope that happens. Um, talking about not going overboard with a player, Matteo Guendouzi, Genduzi. I'm going to have to figure this one out with the pronunciation, guys, because I heard on the, the Arsenal Vision podcast, it's Genduzi, and uh, his name looks like it should be Guendouzi. I don't know, but Genduzi, Guendouzi, that guy, some obviously very uh, promising traits in his football and in his game and the way that he plays. And he's, he's a positive guy. He likes to make passes. He's not afraid to make ambitious passes as well, which I really like. I'm not really buying into this uh, thing that people are going on and on about. Look how he spreads the ball left and how he spreads the ball right. I think any half-decent, competent footballer at uh, anything above Sunday league level is more than capable of playing those passes when you've got time and space in the middle of the park to just play the ball to the right or play the ball to the left. You're floating a pass 30, 40 yards. It's not that difficult. It might look nice and impressive, but I don't think that's really a good measure of anyone's capability uh, as a footballer or as a passer. If you're banging at 60, 70 yards, well over a defense, then fine. That's a little bit different, but these aren't difficult passes. He did make difficult passes in the Chelsea game. He did try and fizz the ball forward between the lines into the forwards or into somebody further up the pitch, which is something we don't necessarily get from Mohamed Elneny. I feel like those two are just a little bit samey for me in terms of um, what they do and where they do it on the pitch. But I think Guendouzi is a bit more positive. Uh, maybe it's because he's trying to make an impression. Maybe he's young and he's playing without fear and all that. But there are things, there really are things to like about what he's done in the three games that he's played for us. But can we just stop a moment and realize that it is just three games, three friendly games, three preseason games against opposition who are themselves aware that these are preseason games and nobody's going to nobody's going to try and get themselves injured nobody's going to run themselves into the ground it's about preparation it's about fitness all that kind of stuff i don't believe that we can make any kind of real judgment on a player based on what he does in preseason which isn't to say i'm casting aspersions on him i'm not talking him down I'm not suggesting that he hasn't been good. I'm not suggesting that he hasn't impressed. But what I am saying is that we need to see him play proper games, competitive games, where the results actually matter against opposition who are going to be giving 100%, whether it's in the Premier League or in a cup competition or in the Europa League. We need to see more than three games before we can start to make an accurate assessment of how good he is. We can say 
what kind of a player we think he is or what kind of attributes we think he has or or where he might fit into the team or what kind of a job he can do. But in terms of his actual quality and his ability to do that job on a consistent basis, we don't know yet. So I'm not getting on board the, the hype train, the Guendouzi hype train, which is careering around the tracks as we speak, like one of those Japanese high-speed trains that goes at about 400 miles an hour. That's what's going on with him. I'm not sure it's necessarily helpful for him as well, because if you start building a guy up after three friendly games, if you build this level of expectation and people are expecting a 19-year-old kid who's played most of his football in League Two to be amazing when he comes to Arsenal in the Premier League, and all of a sudden he plays like a 19-year-old who's got a lot to learn and who's stepped up a level and has got to learn all about that level and the different challenges at that level, isn't? I don't think it's that helpful to him. So that's where I am with him. Congratulations to him for, for what he's done in preseason. Well done. Keep it up. Hopefully you can play this way in the Premier League or in Europe or, or, or in other competitions that actually matter. But, you know, let's give him a chance to settle into a new country, into a new club, a new style of football, a new language a new level of football, higher than anything he's played before. And let's see where we are with him in six months' time. And let's see what kind of a player we've got then. You know, I know we live in a, in a world where snap judgments are made and everybody wants instant satisfaction from everything, but sometimes things take a bit of time and they take a bit of patience. I think that's true of Matteo Guendouzi and I also think it's true of what we're going to get from Unai Emery and the, uh, the, the big job of work that he has to do for this season. Because he's come into an Arsenal team that was on or in a decline. Look at the league table. Look where we ended up. Look at the way we played. Look at our performances. Look at our attitude. Look at our character. Look at our mentality over the last 12 months, 24 months. Look at all the things that he has to try and get right and to fix and repair and to make better. He's only had three or four weeks of preseason training. So, you know, patience in that regard is going to be uh, important as well. What else did I learn from uh, the the trip uh, to Dublin by Arsenal? Well, I know somebody who spoke to Sven Mislintat, our uh, head of recruitment, and the head of recruitment is not expecting to be that busy between now and the 9th of August, which is when the uh, the transfer window closes, in terms of players that we can bring in. Of course, there is the complication of the European transfer windows being open until the end of August. So any club in Europe can buy from us, should we decide to sell, of course, uh, until the end of August, which means that they could, uh, you know, make bids for our players and for one or two of our players, a bid might be difficult to turn down because of their contractual situations. And I think you know who I'm talking about here. Danny Welbeck is one. Uh, Aaron Ramsey is another. Whereby, if we're offered a, a decent chunk of money for either of those two players, then we probably would be inclined to take it 
if we're not convinced that we can get them to sign new terms, or indeed if we want them to sign new terms. There doesn't seem to be any indication that a new contract is in the offing for for Danny Welbeck, whereas uh, it feels like we would like Aaron Ramsey to stay. But there's no news on that. There was a little bit of, I won't say drama, but people were going, ooh, ooh, what's going on here? When the Arsenal Twitter account posted a, a tweet, I was going, this is why we all love Rambo. And that's what it looked like. But uh, in some Twitter clients, you could see that there was actually a link to a story on the Arsenal website uh, about Henrik Mkhitaryan talking about how much they, they like and respect Aaron Ramsey and how much they'd like him to stay. Some people were thinking that was a hint from the club's official Twitter account that perhaps a new deal is uh, almost done. It's not the case. As far as I'm aware, that tweet was made just to tweet out that story. Not to give us a hint that Aaron Ramsey was going to be signing a new deal. So we are where we are with that situation. We are where we are with that. Um, and we are where we are with transfers. The only business I think we're going to do between now and the transfer window are players going out. There was no Lucas Perez in the squad for the Dublin game. There's talk of him going to a small club in Italy. I can't remember the name of the club. I saw a story there. David Ospina doesn't appear to be back uh, with the squad, so maybe he's sorting out his future somewhere. Talk of uh, Besiktas uh, going there on loan. On loan. How is it we can't sell players? Do we need to bring in a head of sales as well? We've got a head of recruitment. We've got a director of football. But we need uh, we need someone to do what like Chelsea do. Chelsea sell players for incredible money, and we can't even give ours away half the time. So, uh, yeah, that's... That's where we are with stuff, and that's what went on this week in, in Dublin. The players came in, they played the game, they went off again. They're going to Stockholm. I'm sure the Swedish fans will have a, a great time watching them play Lazio. And it'll be our final bit of insight into what Unai Emery is doing before we play uh, we play Man City next week. So there you go. That's all the bits and pieces from, from Dublin. Uh, I am going to talk to somebody now, not necessarily about what's going on at Arsenal this week, because apart from the, the game in Dublin, there's not a huge amount going on. I think we've covered it in that little bit there. So I'm going to talk to someone who has written a book about one of the best seasons in Arsenal's history, a title-winning season, one which doesn't get mentioned perhaps as often as it should, even though it was very, very close to being incredibly special. I'll talk to that guy right after this. Are you looking for a footballer this summer? Then get down to the big Arsenal sale. If you need a striker, check out this sumptuous Lucas Perez or this highly desirable Joel Campbell. We've got top quality <coughs> international goalkeepers like David Ospina. And if you need a defender, check out this amazing bargain. One hardly used Carl Jenkinson and you get a Cohen Bramall for free. Chuba your Akpom at the Arsenal sale. Payments accepted in check, credit card, bank transfer, wire transfer, cash, PayPal, Bitcoin, and Magic Beans. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. All right, joining me now on the Arsecast to talk about one of the great Arsenal title-winning seasons, a season in which we only lost one game and a season in which a hell of a lot went on, on the pitch and off it. It's 1990-91, and the author of the book Almost Invincible is Dan Betts. Hi there, how are you? Hi, how are you? I'm not too bad. Thanks for inviting me on. Not at all. Now, everybody has heard of the Invincibles. Everybody knows Arsenal's unbeaten season in 2003-2004. But in 1990-91, Arsenal were one game away from doing that. Now, it wasn't a case that they lost their, their final game of the season and they were that close to doing it. They lost somewhere midway through the season to Chelsea, but only lost one league game that season. And you've written a book about this season. It's called Almost Invincible. Um, give us an idea of why it was you wanted to write the book. Um, yeah, well, obviously, like you said, the Invincibles dominate uh, news. Every Gunnar, well, everyone knows um, about the Invincibles uh, side. And the Premier League era dominates football. It's pretty much like uh, any records before the Premier League didn't exist, mm. as such as the focal point of the Premier League now. And I wanted to highlight... The fact that Arsenal's, Arsenal isn't just the Invincibles. We had some amazing sides, but even in in amongst all of Arsenal's great sides, like everyone remembers the miracle of 89, uh, the 1979 FA Cup final, but no one really points to this incredible season we had in 1990, 1991. Uh, and the more I delved into it, the more I found that this season got more and more incredible. I mean, the fixture scheduling was was beyond chaotic. I mean, for a third of the season, they were playing every three days. They had a 19-man squad. Uh, they, we, we had points deducted, uh, mm. which was the first and only time since then that points have been deducted from a team. And the game that we lost, we never should have lost. And obviously, our captain went to prison. Okay, he okay. missed he missed eight games of the season. It was just incredible uh, what they had to deal with. Exactly, there were many strands to this particular season. But you talked about '89. Arsenal had won the league in 1989 with that dramatic uh, win at Anfield, as we know. Liverpool then won the league in 1990. I think Arsenal finished fourth that season Correct, yep. Um, yep. and that was to this day it remains the last time that Liverpool have won the title um, they, they, <laughs> yeah, they stumbled over the line that season but what we did to them at Anfield um, has caused them all kinds of hassle down the years so there you go but anyway going into this new season George Graham made two very important signings David Seaman from Queen's Park Rangers in goal I think one of the yep. great things <laughs> I remember seeing a video clip of this and John Lukic had obviously been a great servant to Arsenal. He was in goal during the, the 89. And when he signed David Seaman, George Graham said something along the lines of, look, you know, if you can improve your squad uh, with, with a great player, a great goalkeeper, you, you should do that. But John remains yeah. one, of the, one of the top six or seven goalkeepers <laughs> in the league, which is a, kind of a backhanded compliment, but there you go. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah. Seaman, Seaman was brought in along with Anders Limpar. That's, that's correct. Yeah, he bought him. He had one season with uh, Cremonese in, uh, in Syria, who promptly got relegated uh, in 1990, and um, obviously brought him in. And it, you can't really say he went against the grain of George Graham's signings, but George Graham now has it, his name's kind of been tarnished, and everyone, it, 
he's synonymous with this this rigid defence, and, and and rightfully so in a way because the defence was so incredible, and I will mm. maintain that it's probably the best defence that English football has seen in the modern generation. Um, so yeah, he is synonymous with defence, but him signing Limpar probably, if you look, if you read the book, it kind of points to the fact that. If it wasn't for Limpar, I don't think we would have um, won the league so convincingly. Um, he was that spark. He was th- there was nothing else like him in the league. M- maybe the nearest you got to was uh, Gaza in terms of unpredictability. I mean, some of the stuff he did. The one, the goal he scored against Man United to, um, to get us a one 0 win in the game that we um, had that infamous brawl. Mm. Uh, it, it, no one saw it coming, especially uh, Man United's goalkeeper, which meant that he got beat at his near post. Yeah, he was. He was incredible, and that's why people still sing about him. People still know about him. He was the magic in the ointment. He was fantastic. But um, in terms of David Seaman, he was, uh, well, I think he got 20-odd clean sheets that season. He was unbelievable. And George Graham said he was the best in the league, and he proved it that season. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny, isn't it, to think how uh, Limpar was so important that season and so exciting and so... Uh, just fun to watch. He was a great player. When yeah. when he got on the ball, you just felt like something could happen. He was he was a fun player to watch. Um, that that down the years, George, what he bought him for was obviously that. But as he developed as a manager, as he got a bit older as a manager, he he felt he couldn't indulge that. Um, so it was a bit of a shame the way it ended. But that it, yeah. season, yeah. Yeah, it was also, um, uh, the, I spoke to a few uh, players in that squad. I spoke to Lee Dixon, Nigel Winterburn, David mm. Seaman. Bob Wilson was the goalkeeping coach. Uh, and Alan Smith was particularly helpful. And they all told me that oh, everyone knows George Graham didn't accept shirkers in the squad, especially when they came to training. Yeah. And when George Graham didn't turn up to the training ground in his tracksuit, it was a relief to everyone, you know, when uh, Stuart Houston used to take <laughs> charge on those rare days. Yeah. But they never used to accept shirkers. And apparently, Anders Limpar wasn't a sharker but he didn't bust a gut in training so his cards were kind of marked from day one yeah so but the problem was george graham couldn't take him out the side because he was playing so well he was he was unbelievable you can't take limpers out of a team when he he makes the team yeah. so to speak so yeah, he was sure. he, he had his hands tied yeah well look thank goodness for that because he was a, he was <laughs> a really exciting player and actually you know if we talk about some of the incidents that happened that season the, the brawl at old trafford uh, after that Limpar goal, I think he was involved. <laughs> he was involved in the original <laughs> incident in that as well. So, yes, um, yes maybe just was, yeah. tell some of the people who who won't have remembered or weren't around or weren't Arsenal fans at that point what happened and what went down and and um, what kind of an effect it had on the squad in the short term, but also in the long term. Yeah, of course. I, well, I was keen to get to the bottom of this because I'd heard rumours. I wanted to speak to fans who were fans during that time and who, who attended the games. And they alluded to the fact that the Man United rivalry didn't begin then. It, it, it began in about 1987. So I thought I'd get a, a, a real good mouthpiece. And I spoke to Amy Lawrence, the Guardian and Observer journalist. Mm-hmm. And she told me the lowdown. It began in 87. There was a tackle. Um, I think it was Norman Whiteside. Um got involved and he was a bit of a dirty player he and was, yeah. uh, I think it was a Rocky Rollcastle got involved and there was a lot of bad blood and every season from 1987 onwards it got worse and worse and worse and uh, how it began I think it was Nigel Winterborn or Anders Limpar uh, went in on uh, someone and when Limpar was on the ground uh, he got kicked while he was on the ground and obviously every single Arsenal player jumped to his defence and it just sparked a wildfire and 
out of the 22 men on the pitch, 21 men were involved. The only person who wasn't involved was David Seaman, who, who stayed. He was, you know, he's, he's a gentle giant. He just stayed well back. But even Man United's keeper got involved. And uh, we got deducted two points. Man United's strength got deducted one. Uh, because they weren't viewed as the instigators, mm. but it was yeah, it wasn't just handbags at dawn like you see nowadays. It was um, yeah, yeah, the red mist at the, dawn, but in, on every single player because was. there was bad blood before that. Sure, there was, and I think there were there was some stuff going back with Brian McClare and Nigel Winterburn as well. That's uh, the one. Over exactly. a, yeah, you reminded me yeah. over a penalty. I think that McClare skied over the bar in a in a game. So I mean, there was bad <laughs> blood certainly between the two sides, but you know, actually, when you look at it, it's not like guys are being absolutely laid out with punches or strangled or you know kicked in the arse or, or anything like that. It is no, no. it is kind of handbags. And they're not 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 to say they've been worse, really, but there's been similar kind of incidents, maybe not involving as many players. But as you said, the the points deduction was absolutely unprecedented at the time and remains so because nobody yeah. has been deducted points. And I think in, in some ways for the Arsenal squad and for George Graham, it was, uh, for the fans as well, kind of a galvanizing thing. To, yes, to feel very, like very to feel like you've been hard done by and you've been put upon and somehow you know the old the old uh, cliche about how uh, they're all out to get us uh, it mm, does mm. it does sort of allow you to circle the wagons yeah it fostered a siege mentality you're completely right in terms of uh, you are right in a way it was handbags at dawn if you look back on it, if you just t- uh, if you can think that it did not deserve a two point penalty because we've seen mm. things of the like since then but it was a, a galvanising motion. There was a, a, a video that did the rounds in the news at the time when uh, George Graham was uh, seen to be telling off all the players on the training ground, you know, uh, you've, you've disappointed the fans. Now, apparently what happened was when the cameras were off, George Graham was like, and I absolutely bloody loved it. You, you stood up for everyone. <laughs> you, you had everyone's back. And it's exactly what he wanted. And it just fostered that siege mentality um, that really pushed us on for the rest of the season. The, if one player was down, then the rest would back him up. And that's what that's what helped us get through when Tony Adams was missing. Because I did a lot of research into how do you replace Mr. Arsenal? Um, and it's apparently Bob Wilson said that Lee Dixon, if, Mr., if Tony Adams wasn't there, Lee Dixon would have been a perfect captain. And uh, everyone just stood up in, in his absence. Yeah. So, yeah, there were so many different facets that were so fascinating. It just, it was a, it was a brilliant season. It really was. Yeah. And when you talk about Tony Adams, he was, uh, he was sent to jail because he was convicted of drunk driving. Um, he crashed mm-hmm. his car. And uh, I think at the, at the uh, I suppose at the time, and even nowadays to a certain extent, when something happens like that with a, a celebrity, if you'll excuse the expression, there's a, there's sort of like a, a tendency for them to get away with stuff that your normal man on the street would not get away with, whether they've got influence, whether they've got better legal representation, you know, whether I'm not suggesting anybody has ever done anything untoward to avoid a prison sentence or anything like that. All of the famous people out there. But <laughs> kind, these things happen and they kind of get a, a slap on the wrist. And it might be a very harsh slap on the wrist, but that's kind of what happened. But it yeah. was... It was different this time. All of a sudden, Arsenal's captain has been sent to jail for four months. Yeah. Uh, George Graham uh, actually commented in the newspapers, and it was quite good to see him. In a way, it was quite a, kind of concerning because he's backing up his captain after um, he's been arrested and convicted of, uh, of drink driving. But at the same time, he backs into the hilt and said, 
the, he, he deserves to be punished, but this is unprecedented. This is too much. Mm. Um, and uh, but he, yeah, he got he, he got banged up for for quite some time. And uh, the thing is, you got to ask yourself: if it was any other side, would the would the wheels have come off with such a pivotal member of the team, the the leader that everyone looked to him for for inspiration? Mm. He was the middleman between George Graham and the squad. If, if it was any other team, would would they have collapsed? I think they would have. I really do. Um, he played such a big part. Yeah. But no, we, we just kept on we kept on trucking, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't all ups and downs. I remember, um, you know, it looked like we were we were heading towards a, a, a double, um, and we played mm, Tottenham. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. But I can remember <laughs> it's one of those ones where that's absolutely and completely etched in my mind because I was in college at the time, and I remember. Mm. Where I don't remember where we were the night before, but I remember where I was the day after, and it was sitting on a mate's sofa, being absolutely and unbelievably hungover. Like probably the the first, the first really really bad hangover of my life. You know when you're young and you go out and you drink and you're like, yeah, oh, a bit of a headache. I feel bad, yeah. but this was actually yeah. dismal. I felt so awful, and it was a a Saturday <laughs> afternoon, and the FA Cup semi final was on, so we watched the match, and it was like, oh god, I feel even worse now, um, <laughs> because it was it was one of those where uh, I think Gary Lineker scored, but it was the one where Gaza scored that free kick, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's the one. Like I maintain. I maintain David Seaman should have done better with that. I'm sorry, it's a great free kick, but he should have done better. Yeah, you're probably right. Upon <laughs> further inspection, yeah, you're right. But you ask, I asked all the um, squad members who I spoke to uh, about what was more disappointing. Was it losing that game against Chelsea in the league? But they all said the Tottenham game. Uh, they, they were convinced they were going to win the double. But strangely enough, Considering Tottenham had, yeah, they had a sprinkle of talent in there, but I mean there was, I mean they had Vinny Samways in the centre of midfield. The man is, man is a journeyman. To, uh, mm-hmm. They 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 couldn't hold a candle to us in terms of in terms of talent, and yet we never beat them once in that season, uh, whether it be the league campaigns uh, or, or the. Um, their fake up game we, we, we couldn't get over the line that's really interesting which is weird. no it is interesting mm. it's weird and a bit interesting but I think that's that's part of what makes Derby games so so kind of special that regardless of the respective talents of the team the games are always really very close it was true in the Invincibles yeah. era wasn't it when you know Tottenham couldn't come near Arsenal when it came to individual mm. talent but you know when you put them in a one-on-one situation it's not necessarily as easy as as you think it's going to be. But anyway, leaving that uh, terrible disappointment aside, there were interesting things going on at Liverpool as well. Liverpool were our main rival, main, main title contenders that year as well, as they had been throughout the 80s and the 70s and the 80s, and they were such a, a fantastic team and had such a formidable record of winning things. But odd things were going on there. I think uh, Kenny Dalglish... Uh, because of everything that had gone on with with Hillsborough, I think it had affected him quite deeply. Um, yeah. And mid-season, if I remember, or sometime after the new year, he more or less did he quit, or did he decide he was going to leave at the end of the season, or or how did no, that play? No, he quit. Him? He quit yeah. pretty much back on his quit on his stool. Um, and then uh, Graham Souness was brought in, um, which who you thought you know another inspirational cop figure. You know they're, they're just going to carry on regardless, but. Um, I don't think the wheels fell off, so to speak, but I mean, no one saw it coming. Uh, and the, the newspapers at the time were obviously emblazoned with King Kenny out, and yeah. uh, it was yeah, no, nobody saw it coming. But even before he left, you could see that um, he was struggling. But his reasons for uh, his comments were saying he just couldn't do it anymore. He was playing a game against, I think it was Derby County, and the, he said that there was a sub that was crying out to be made, and he was on the bench. 
and he's he's thinking to himself I know I've got to make it this decision has to be made mm. but I just can't bring myself to do it because I don't care and yet if that, imagine if there was any other manager they would have been lambasted they would have they, you know Kenny out you know kill Kenny mm. none of that they just they were just also shocked and they just wanted him back because you know it's Kenny Dalglish mm. and uh, he, that's why he left he, he just I think like you uh, mentioned in regards to Hillsborough I think that just knocked the stuffing out of him um but Graham Souness couldn't recover the situation. And uh, I don't think, even if you brought in the world's best manager at that time, we were a, we were a juggernaut. I, I mean, we weren't just bulldozing teams. We were mm. doing it with style. We were ripping them apart, whether it would be in the air, on the deck. We had an answer to whatever team came up against us. We were just so incredible that mm. season. Um, and that's down to tactics as well as the, the men on the pitch. For sure, for sure. And I think we can thank Graeme Souness for, uh, you know, bringing Liverpool down a road, which uh, it took them a long, long time to come back from. So well done to you, Graeme Souness. Uh, I suppose there's something ironic, or whether it's ironic or lovely, about the fact that when we won the title in the, uh, the second last game of the season, uh, it was a win at home against Manchester United. <laughs> yeah, very true. And what a win as well. Mm. We we spanked them. And I spoke to a couple of fans who were, uh, they'd all arranged to meet up in the pubs um, around Highbury to watch the Liverpool game because they kind of had a feeling that something was going to happen. Obviously, Ian Warren popped up to, to you know, score the winner. Mm. And the, the party atmosphere was absolutely crazy. And uh, I spoke to the players and they said... Um, you know, heading to Highbury, they just they struggled to get through because you know having all road was chocker, and it was just to hear their their emotions and how they remembered and how vivid it was. It still was for them. It just shows you that any trophy should be completely and utterly embraced. Because while this was, I, I still maintain it was probably one of the best title wins of one of the best wins ever in Arsenal's history. I think any trophy win should be embraced because you don't know when you're going to get that next one again, and it's yeah. it's those memories that make your connection to a club so strong you know for sure these guys were, were recalling it so emotionally it was yeah it was beautiful to hear well look the book is called almost invincible uh the arsenal class of 1991 it's available via legends publishing we do have a copy to give away as a, a competition thanks very much to you dan uh we'll no do worries. that we'll do that now in a second but look thank you very much indeed for your time no i appreciate it, andrew thank you uh, very much for having me on there you go that's dan betts uh, he's on Twitter at JockmanAFC, J-O-K-Man-A-F-C, if you want to give him a follow. And if you would like to win a copy of the book, Almost Invincible, the Arsenal Class of 91, all you got to do is email competition at arseblog.com and tell me who was Arsenal's leading scorer in the 1990-91 season. Not that difficult a question. Email your answer, please, to competition at arseblog.com and I will give out the winner on next week's Arsecast. If I remember to do that, I'll write it down. Hang on, I'll write it down right now. Give out winner. Oh, thing. You see, the thing is, I've got to write something down to remind me to look at the thing that I've, I've written down. If only we had a thing on our phones. Oh, I do. I can do it, can't I? Uh, set a reminder. Pick a winner for the Arsecast competition next Thursday afternoon. Yes. Okay. Reminder saved. There we go. Technology. Isn't that wonderful? So it will remind me next Thursday, and I'll give you a winner uh, on the podcast. Right. Uh, as I'm recording on Thursday evening, um, I've been told by somebody, and I've seen a couple of other people mention it as well, that Ivan Gazidis is apparently 
leaving. Maybe it's one of his um, little tricks again. Maybe it is. On Monday, he'll come out after signing a brand new contract and say, those who know don't podcast. Those who podcast don't know. Maybe he will. But that's the story going around this evening, which to me seems not necessarily a surprise based on some of the stuff we've been hearing because the links to AC Milan are are very strong. There's a lot of smoke. Uh, There is clearly some fire to this story. Uh, We've had a story during the week in The Telegraph that Arsenal are aware of this AC Milan link uh, to Ivan Gazidis. I think he had apparently... From what I heard, originally denied there was anything going on, and now there is something going on. And if you read the Arsenal statement from the other week with the context of of that, then it begins to make a little bit more sense. It's still not a particularly great statement or anything like that, but it's sort of creating a distance between the board and and Ivan Gazidis. And uh, the use of language in that statement was was quite telling, wasn't it? Where they said, Ivan has always been blah, 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 instead of Ivan is fully committed, etc., etc. So that's what's going on on Thursday evening. I think it would be wise to wait until it actually happens, if it happens, to comment on it. Uh, any further. So maybe that might be something we touch on in the Arscast Extra on Monday, myself and James. I'm sure uh, many of you have thoughts about this, uh, the timing of it. Uh, Yeah, basically (laughs) the timing of it, just before the start of a new season, having made the biggest changes in the club's recent history and finally not freeing yourself from the yoke of Arsene Wenger, but, but being front and centre and doing all this stuff and having the the power, I guess, to make all these appointments and not have to to be in deference to a, a legacy manager, a man who's been there for so many years. And Gazidis and Wenger relationship was not great uh, down those years. So it is all a bit strange in general. So maybe something will happen. We might get some uh, developments on that over the weekend. And of course, if we do... We'll cover them on Ars Blog News and, of course, on the main blog as well. As ever, thank you very much indeed for listening. I really do appreciate it. It's great to have you along. If you want to give us a rating or review on iTunes, feel free. Uh, we dig that. I hope you have a, a great weekend. And remember that uh, from Monday, we're going to be counting down the days to a brand new season uh, when Arsenal kick off against Manchester City. It is beginning to get quite exciting. So, until then, have a good one. Cheers. Bye-bye. Are you looking for a chief executive this summer? Then get on down to the big Arsenal sale. Are you looking for a high-quality Welsh midfielder on the cheap? Then get on down to the Arsenal sale. Are you looking for feckless idiot know-nothing ITKs? Then get on down to Arsenal Twitter. Are you looking for uninterested, unambitious American owners? Then get on down to Stan's Ranch, Texas. 
Are you tired of being immaculately well-dressed every day? Then come down to Sven's Boutique and we'll tramp you up in no time. Are you looking for a good time? Well, then call me on 0777-797074, I think. Uh, wake me up if I'm asleep. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.